Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hey, everybody. Hope you're doing well this week. I'm excited to bring this interview in particular to y'all. This is a conversation I recorded and had with Bronnie Lennox Thompson. She is the academic coordinator and director of the programs for pain and pain management out of the University of Otago in New Zealand. She treats and works with clinicians who treat and educates clinicians who treat patients in chronic pain. So we had a conversation about the biopsychosocial model. So if you think back to episode one of this podcast, or if you've read any of the writing that I do at Rehab U Practice Solutions, if you've worked with this as a client, if you've been on the receiving end of a lecture of mine at the university, you know that I am a very big proponent of the biopsychosocial model and a biopsychosocial approach to healthcare, which essentially means we're looking at individuals as whole people rather than diagnoses or symptoms. So when a patient walks into our clinic or into our organization, they're not back pain or they're not shoulder pain or they're not this kind of limitation. They're, you know, Mr. Smith and they reside at this place with this personal work context and history and family and social support and all of their history from their past and experiences in the healthcare system and with healthcare clinicians. And that is who we're treating. We're not treating this, you know, their body part, this shoulder, this back. We're treating the, the individual, the entire person, mind, body, spirit, and we're helping them overcome whatever limitation or manage whatever pain they've got so that they can return to doing the things that they really want to be doing, which may be, you know, throwing a baseball in the backyard with their grandkids. It might be doing whatever they got to do for work. But our job as clinicians, at least from a biopsychosocial perspective, is not so much to do something to quote unquote, do something to the person or our patient to treat this symptom. It's to really look at them holistically. So I had a great conversation with Bronnie about that, about how we as clinicians can begin influencing change on the behalf of our patients. Like how can we get them to adopt healthy lifestyles, follow home exercise programs, whatever it is, and still maintain and build a strong therapeutic relationship. So without further ado, let's dive right into the interview. Here's Bronnie Lennox Thompson talking about the biopsychosocial model. Well, thanks for, for taking the call and being on the show. I, I love talking about the biopsychosocial model of rehab, specifically when we're talking about chronic pain. So I do, I do a little bit of research on it at the university here in Augusta. Well, just tell me about yourself. Okay, so I'm... Um a mother of two children and a Labradoodle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I've got a, 
um, a cat as well, but we don't worry about her. Um, my background is occupational therapy. I did my master's degree in psychology and my PhD was looking at um, people who live well with persistent pain, despite not having a cure and quite, having quite moderate to severe pain. Um, and in my day-to-day -day work, I'm an ed educator, really. I work in the post, I lead the postgrad programs in pain and pain management at the University of Otago. Um, so I have, um, we have three different programs. There's musculoskeletal medicine, there's a musculoskeletal management uh -huh. program, and then there's the pain and pain management um, suite. And that's, that's my day job. And I do a little bit of clinical work. Um, and I seem to hang around social media a bit. A bit, a bit yeah. You're, yeah. you're on the interwebs. So your your programs up at uh, at the university, mm. do they do more than one discipline filter through? Like you said, they're just kind of musculoskeletal pain management. So you have physios and OTs and everybody kind of we running have, through it. Um, we probably have the most diverse range of students that I I can think of. I can't think of a, a health profession that has not been represented so we have medical practitioners and they all get the same material in the uh -huh. pain and pain management suite so there's uh, medical practitioners nurses ot's physios psychologists pharmacists podiatrists chiropractors osteopaths massage therapists uh probably one or two others that i haven't remembered to, <laughs> to yeah, add into wow. them yeah so we're very very lucky to have such a diverse um range of people and we all get the same, you know, they get the same information irrespective of their professional background. Uh -huh. And what do they end up with? Is it, is it like a certificate in pain management? or yeah, you can start at a certificate level, which is um, a certain number of points. Then you can progress to a diploma um, and then on to a master's of health science endorsed in pain and pain management. Okay. So, and We'll, we'll get some PhDs eventually. We're, the program's reasonably new, and because most of, well, all of our students are working at clinically uh -huh. and studying, most of them do do it part time. So they do one course a semester, and it takes quite a few years to roll. Yeah, to, to rack up enough credits. Program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, um, that means that what the the questions that they're asking in clinical, you know, in their research thing, and and in all the questions that we do and all our assessments and things are all related to clinical questions. So, you know, what does this mean in the real world? Yeah. It's my, it's my theme song. <laughs> yeah. What is it? What are you going to do for the patient that's sitting in front of you? Right. Cause a lot of them are coming to see you one day for, for class and they're going to go treat a patient the next day. Right. Yeah. 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 So all of the assessments, are, we've, we've been put, um, increasing the interprofessional interaction. So, for the current paper um, on pain assessment, they, they do a reflective um, piece on their own assessment practice. Then they go and spend some time with another, somebody from a different profession, and then write a reflective piece on the similarities, the differences, what would happen if they assessed together, um, what can they take away from having observed that other person. So it's kind of really getting people to dig deep into think about what they do and how they might do it differently. Yeah, it takes interprofessional education to a whole new level, right? Oh, it's just so wonderful because a lot of the, um, especially the medical practitioners don't spend much time with other professions in New Zealand because they're once they've gone through their original training, if you're a general practitioner or primary care physician, 
then you're working in primary care and you might see nurses and you might see physios and probably pharmacists, but you won't get to interact with the rest of the, the other professions very often. So this is a real chance for people to recognise that in pain management, we can't be a um, you know, one-man band. Yeah, it, it can't silo. Happen. Yeah, that's, I, I love talking with students about that. You know, we, I came from my clinical background was at the, at our VA hospital and that was, yeah. they were very much at the beginning stages back 2012, 2013 of starting like an interprofessional pain management practice. And it was yeah. like, you got that's these so- people in the room and they were, they were physicians and orthopedic surgeons and people that were very used to, to being in their kind of just yep. in, everybody stays in their lane, right? Yep. And yep. This kind of, this kind of treatment, this kind of approach to healthcare kind of, there's a blend, if you would, over all the different professions and yeah. you, know, you might yeah. do a little something it, here and over there. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to come from um, one lens of seeing the world and, and particularly the medical model of looking at the disease and physiotherapy uh-huh. as well looks at disease. Whereas, when we're working in pain management, particularly persistent pain management, we're thinking of the illness. What is it like for this person to be experiencing this experience? And how can we help them flourish and live really good good lives? Um, can we re- remove the pain or reduce the pain? Yes, that's a big part of it. But then when we can't, and for lots of people we can't, then how can we help them live really well anyway? Yeah, and that's, and that's the thrust of, of what I focus on really is the, the how do we help people live really, really rich and rewarding lives despite the fact that, you know, pain's tagging along with them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but you're kind of diverting away from this old biomedical model of healthcare, if you would, for more of a, a biopsychosocial. So can you can you kind of explain for someone who hasn't heard, what is biopsychosocial healthcare? really thinking about the person in context so when we have an experience we know for example with pain that there's going to be some neurobiological aspects so there might be some things in the periphery and um, there's probably going to be changes in the central nervous system as well and so we we know that but that doesn't add up it's not enough to add up to why is this person presenting in this way at this time So a biopsychosocial model says, yes, you've got this biological stuff happening, but here's a person and they've got thoughts and beliefs and attitudes and emotions. They've got attention. They've got got their cultural context. They've got the life context that they, they live in. And all of these factors interact to create this experience that this person says, I need some help with. And I think that's the... That's the gist of it. It's really person, person-centered care, uh, in the, in its broadest sense. Yeah. So we're not just looking at it as a at a symptom or a diagnosis. We're kind of taking a look at the whole person, right? Yeah. And when it comes to persistent pain, it's pain isn't just a symptom. It is it is an experience that is takes a life on of its own, and it might be that that becomes the disease and that's what the ICD-11 new um, characterization of or classification for chronic primary pain is it says that 
actually, rather than being just a symptom of something that we haven't solved, let's acknowledge that it is a disease in its own right. It's its own diagnosis. So then do we have to make a distinction, I guess, between people that might be experiencing some sort of acute pain or acute injury versus somebody who might be experiencing pain long after, you know, normal tissue healing would have occurred? Yeah, absolutely. Although I think it's really important to remember that everybody who who has persistent pain, it first came on at some point. So it was acute at that point. And every pain experience is informed by the person, the context, the place, their attitudes, their past experiences, their expectations for the future. And that's what I mean by, by being a whole experience. So yes, with acute pain, what we're hoping is if we can intervene, it become it remains just a symptom. But there are lots of disorders that we have very little that we can do from a pharmaceutical perspective in particular. And I'm thinking here of um, neuropathic pain. Yeah. yeah. We just have so little and yet it's and it's the most tricky type of pain I think to, to deal with. Um, and then we've got this group of pains called nociplastic pains and migraines and fibromyalgia and um, irritable bowel and interstitial cystitis, they all fall into this group. And there are a bunch of disorders where you can scan the body as much as you like. You'll not find something that you can structurally address. It's about the way that the nervous system is functioning. And that's dear to my heart because I live with fibromyalgia. And um, it's not a figment of my imagination and I'm not making it up. And I know a lot about pain, so I can't be educated out of my pain. But actually, it's a reality that there are very few ways of treating it to reduce the pain. So everything that somebody with pain, and this is whether it's a... Um, acute pain, it's a neuropathic pain or a nociplastic pain, people have to do the daily living. And that's that's why I think thinking broader than it's a disease helps us to think, here's a person who's going to leave us um, after we have our half hour with them or an hour with uh-huh. them, and they're going to go away and they're going to have to do a whole lot of stuff for themselves. And unless we think about how the things we advise them to do fit into the context of their lives, probably they won't do it. So we have to think carefully as, as health professionals about when, you know, tailoring our expectations and the things that we ask people to do so they can get on and, and live a life without just making their pain management their life. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, I'm sure something like, you know, disability identity or disease identity really plays a role in that too. Like we don't want to be reinforcing this idea of you're a patient, right? Like you've yeah, got things yeah. to do after you leave me. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we can we can forget. So, you know, within prescribing exercise, for example, to somebody who's had an accident and they've never exercised in their life before, yeah. they develop this back pain and suddenly they've got to do exercise. And I think sometimes we can forget that, Um, we do movement in lots of different ways as humans. So exercise and go to the gym and do lifting things and jogging is one form, but so is gardening, so is dancing, so is playing with your kid on the the ground and throwing a soccer ball. There's so many different ways that we can do that movement 
part of what we know helps people with pain. Um, so I'm trying to liberate, you know, the idea of what we do for people with persistent pain from the um, inside a little box or a gym studio or a or somebody's um, clinic and out into the wilds of, of the real world. Yeah. You do these exercises two to three times a day or whatever for 50 reps. Like there's a way to do it. It's more functional, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the OT and you're coming out. <laughs> I'm afraid it's never left me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, underneath it, we're trying to think about, as OTs, I think, we're thinking about this contextual nature. And I think if we can think of occupational therapists as knowledge translators. So we, other professions can work with people in their in their offices and they talk about the theory of and they might even do stuff for example in the gym or um you know wherever but what we do is occupational therapists is think about so in daily life how can we weave this in how can we make this real and part of who you are instead of a bolted on thing yeah something so, we're tacking on yeah yeah so it's woven into this person's sense of self um so i think as a profession we're really respectful of the nature of the differences between people um, and that when we're thinking about the way we solve problems with people we're working with what they come up with and yet we're still pulling all this theory that we know and things that other people have told us you know from other professions and the, and the things that the person brings to them to their own situation bringing all that together to say how can we help you live the best you can yeah. No, that's awesome. I I do want to circle back. You had mentioned previously a couple of minutes ago about, you know, you can take body scans and you can take images and that doesn't always point to a structure. Can you talk a little bit about what doing all those scans might cause in a patient? Like, are we by blanketedly sending a patient, we're going to send you to go get an X-ray or an MRI or a CT scan. And then let's say nothing, you know, it's a perfectly, it's a quote unquote, non, you know, non-significant findings for whatever imaging. Like what does that do to a patient by the time they come to us at that point? Um, I think a lot of, especially anxious patients, people who are really worried about what's going on in their body, they get told to go and have a scan and they think, oh, it, it must be really serious because they, yeah. they say I have to have a scan. And then they see a little something on there which and we know from the literature, um, from the research, that when someone has a scan, but the potential is that we'll find something. It's probably yeah. incidental, but it's so easy to say, oh, that's why, and then do something. And the research shows that people who get scans end up to have more surgery and more invasive procedures. So their outcomes aren't always wonderful. And not only that, if you're worried and then your scan comes up normal, Instead of being reassured by that, research again shows that people start to think, oh, hold on, maybe they didn't do the right part of my body. Maybe they, maybe it was a good, maybe things have changed since I had that scan. And so it can reduce anxiety temporarily, uh-huh. but it doesn't actually change the person's fundamental belief that there's something going on. I get that it's really hard to say to somebody, hmm, a scan isn't the right thing for you um, because doctors in particular are afraid that they're going to miss something 
And that's a very, you know, they have a huge responsibility for ensuring that they diagnose properly. Correctly, yeah. Um, because, you know, even in New Zealand where we don't have suing, they can be taken to the Health and Disability Commissioner and, you know, that's that's not great. Um, and I also think there's a tendency to want the person to like us. And if we say no to something, we're a bit yes. scared that we're not going to be liked and that person's going to be um, dissatisfied and unhappy. And that's a conversation that's difficult to have, particularly if you're a, a medical practitioner with a 15-minute appointment slot and you've got someone that you need to actually have a conversation with about why a scan doesn't show pain. No scans. We haven't got any thermometer that says, this is your pain thermometer. This is your pain scan. Um, And even if we did, would it capture what it is like, the lived experience of being that person with their unique worries and concerns and the unique impact, all it would show is, hey, you've got pain. Yeah, we already knew that, right? (laughs) Yeah, you told us, so what's the difference? So to me, it's, um, I guess, the the challenge is to have a respectful conversation about what imaging can and can't show and any other type of um, investigative procedure to say it can show us some stuff and it can show us some stuff that we might be able to do something to, but we won't know anything about the pain experience and the the impact that that's having on you. And that's the bit of the conversation that I think gets missed out. Yeah, I think in, especially, you know, on the Facebook pages or the interwebs and you're, it seems like there's this polarizing, you've you've been in the threads, you've seen them like, oh, "Oh, you should never ever order a scan ever because all you're going to do is, you know, cause the patient to catastrophize or something like that. And then there are other people that are, no, you have to do a scan because you need to make sure that you're finding whatever pathophysiological thing is going on. Yeah, I think the, um, the, the strategy I'd, I'd recommend is to think, will, giving, will a finding on this image change what we do next? And is it aligned with this person's other parts of their presentation? Because if it's not, then there's no point. Yeah, you're you know, just wasting as I say, money. You can scan me and you will find absolutely nothing wrong. Well, I'm, I'm 56. I'm probably going to have yeah. some changes. Some age-related changes. Some D-day, D-day, G, well, DJD somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I call it, you know, wrinkles on the inside or grey hair <laughs> on my, of my back. But it's, um, it's not going to change what you do. You're not going to give me new discs or new, new spine to replace those because that's not a thing. And we know that invasive surgeries, particularly for back pain, where there aren't neurological signs, don't seem to have very great outcomes. So we've got to question whether it makes a difference. Even with shoulder pain, and that's very common in my age group, um, yes, I did have an ultrasound in there, and it showed an enlarged bursa, and I did get some injections in there. They changed, cortisone changed it for three weeks, a whole three weeks. And now all I'm thinking is, oh, yes, I've got this, you know, enlarged bursa. So that's what the problem is. But it doesn't change how I manage it or what I do to manage it. So it's not that useful. So I guess we, we need to ponder about and, and train people in those conversations how to have those 
difficult conversations that help to let people down from their belief that this is going to fix me. Yeah, no, I think a lot of it is the, the expectation of the public, right? Like patients want the scan sometimes. They want, they want you to do something to them, you know, do this manipulation or mobilize from? me or stretch me or, or something, yeah. yeah. But where did that come from? Um, and I think we've got to, you know, let's have a look at what is in the popular. Um, you know, look, let's look at CSI. Now, it's not a medical program. But in CSI, we have a major, amazing machines that can spit out stuff in like minutes and they've got blue lights and, you know, they're awesome. Yeah. Um, my partner works in the, in the mortuary. So he's a, he works as a mortuary technician. His job is to do post-mortems, to take samples. It takes a couple of weeks to get a DNA sample analysed. It is not fast. It is not, we don't have a machine that tells us everything. And there's a lot of um, expectation now in the public that if somebody dies unexpectedly, we will take them into the mortuary, we will scan the body and we will find out the problem. But actually, we can't do that. There are so many times when somebody's death cannot be explained. And we've, and it's because of this sort of meme and the... Um, I don't know, in the, in the media that says you can just scan it and you'll find the answers and we'll walk around with guns and we'll actually solve the problem. But we always laugh with um, yeah. things like CSI because nobody pr protects, you know, their body with a, um, with a coverall and, they, and they're dripping hair all over the place so it's contaminating the, yeah, the crime exactly, scene anyway. Yeah. But, and I think those same expectations, we've got House, which was a fantastic series, loved it to bits, but you know, it simplistically showed that if you look hard enough and if you think outside the square, you'll find the, the problem and then we'll fix it and the person goes away happy. With persistent pain, we know that that's just not the case. There's not one single essential factor that we've missed. It's bigger than that. Our nervous system is wonderfully complex and to think that we can find the one thing that might be making the problem um is a bit short-sighted yeah yeah there's no there oftentimes there's not a magic bullet right absolutely not certainly not for neuropathic and nociplastic pain and even for inflammatory pain so again you know, i use my partner he has ankylosing spondylitis so for years he's had been on really high doses of um, anti-inflammatory um medications and then he went on to a um an adalimumab which is a chimera it's a biological and he now his pain is zero which is amazing oh, wow, yeah. but lots of people don't have that response most people who go on to the biologicals have to top it up with other stuff and they're still experiencing pain so even if we've got really effective ways of you know reducing inflammation people can still experience pain, which suggests that it's not as easy as saying, well, your pain's because you've got infl inflammation. It's just not as simple as that. Yeah. Well, and that, that kind of leads us into like how we talk about that with our patients. You know, like I know the first, the first few times that I tried to explain pain to a patient, oh, I know I butchered it. You know, like the patient's walking away like, oh, you're telling me it's all in my head now. It's like, no, 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 the system, the nervous system is complex. So like, how do, how do we broach that subject with patients? Maybe it's a patient that is experiencing, you know, something like fibromyalgia where they're 
there isn't anything on a scan and they're coming to you and they're, they're they really are experiencing pain. It's a legitimate experience on their end. How do we, how do we broach that as clinicians? Um, I talk about a nervous system rather than the brain. So I say we've got nervous systems that are there to, to help, to help protect us. Um, we think they're there to protect us. They're also there to give us delight. Um, there's nothing like, uh, you know, fresh ice cream, yeah. creamy, vanilla, yum. Um, not in the middle of winter here. But <laughs> so we've got a nervous system that is incredibly capable of producing these experiences. And we know that pain is something that we experience from as early as we are alive. And what we know, though, is that every, from my perspective, every body system has dysfunction at some point. We've got a disease for every system in the body so far. I can't think of anywhere where there is no disease. Yeah. And yet we sometimes, a lot of professionals think that we couldn't have a dysfunctional nervous system. But that's blatantly you know, wrong. So I talk to people about the fact that that's what their, their nervous system is about. It's there to, to alert us to stuff. Lots of stuff, good stuff and bad stuff, but it's there to alert us. And then we have a decision about what do I do next. And I think that's what we can, how we can ex help explain pain. I don't, I ask people to look at their own experiences. You know, pain is weird. Take a paper cut, tiny little cut, and boy, does it hurt. Why is that? How come? You know, and then there are other people in, in New Zealand who talk about, um, so we have sharks around our, our coastline and yeah. shark attacks and people say, well, I've been bitten by a shark and I didn't feel it. felt like, felt like a dull thud at the time. And then when I got back to, to shore, that's when it started to hurt. Well, how come? So I ask people this, this sort of question. I ask, well, why is it that some people can go and play rugby so it's like gridiron, but yeah. without the armour, right? Exactly, and yeah. And these guys are big men, and they're going straight towards each other. And we've had guys on the rugby field going out with fractures. Now, why would you do that? Yeah, exactly. But they do. So we've got lots of examples around where pain is actually quite weird. We can make choices about what we do as a result of pain. We know from the paper cut example that it doesn't have to be a very big piece of tissue damage for it to be really sore. And if you've ever stubbed your toe, particularly your little toe, you know <laughs> what I mean, how that hurts. And then we've got different attitudes towards our pains. So, and we use different language. We talk often talk about a back injury, but we don't talk about a headache as if it was a head injury, right? Yeah. Different way of viewing viewing it. So I help people by joining the dots of their own experience. So you notice this pain was coming on. What makes it worse? What makes it better? When you when it's coming on, what's going through your mind? How might that affect what you're experiencing? So that rather than explaining that you've got this nervous system that's got these ascending and descending, you know, and you can get really technical. Yeah. We we can use everyday examples from this person's life about when the 
relationship between what goes on in the tissues and what they're experiencing doesn't make sense. And where what they do about their pain and what the and the intensity don't correlate very well. And if we use those examples, we can start to help the person understand that we absolutely believe them, but when you've got pain and you're feeling really down, then of course your pain's going to feel worse. What you're not going to be happy because you're sore. You know, so we can start to help people recognize that pain is an experience and it's influenced by all these different things. And the stories that you and I make up because we read journal articles and things may or may not be correct. So I learned about my pain back in the mid 80s when um, I was asked to read by my wonderful rheumatologist the book, The Challenge of Pain. It was written by Melzack and Wall. Yeah, and it was yeah. like a paperback version of, of you know, their theory. Now, we know that that is an incomplete explanation. We know that the theory has been revised. And yet, with that erroneous um, explanation, I turned my life around and started to do things because I was reassured I wasn't doing myself any harm. And since the beginning of pain management um, and pain rehabilitation, think about Fordyce and the Seattle model of pain from the what, late 60s, early 70s and onwards, those um, programs have always used some kind of information to help people realise that, you know, yes, I hurt, but it doesn't mean that I'm doing myself some damage. So we can make up as many stories as we like about what we think is going on. It may or may not be correct. What's important, I think, is that this person believes that they're safe when they move. And yes, it's probably going to hurt because, you know, if we tend to yeah. be doing things for a while, it's going to hurt. But we're still safe and we'll move at the pace that the person's capable of and we'll just gradually take those scaffolds of safety and security away so the person's up to a more dynamic range, whether their pain changes or not. Interestingly, as people start to do things, very often the relevance of the pain intensity drops anyway. So whether that's because the pain intensity is actually dropping or whether it's that the person's not bothered by their pain as much, we don't know. Because yeah, we, we can't just know it's working. pain directly, <laughs> you know? And we know that when people give a number on a 0 to 10 scale, that at least part of that number that they give is made up of communicating to you, take me seriously, and how fed up or distressed I am. So there's an emotional com component to that rating. because So someone giving, might rate you a, a 7 or an 8 because they've seen four doctors before, they feel like they're not being heard, and now you're oh. the next person in line and they're like, oh, it's, it's an eight or a nine. Or because they know if you go into your emergency room and you say, I've got pain of three out of 10, you're not going to get anything. Exactly. Any yeah. So it makes sense to, um, to change. And that's not a deliberate planned thing. I don't know about you, but giving a number for my pain is nigh on impossible. Like what's the most extreme pain ever? I don't know. I've had yeah. babies. Does that count? Yeah, exactly. You know, and and that was a long time ago, and, and it kind of falls out of your brain. So, I think we can think that we've got a true measure of pain with a number, and we don't. 
And we have to remember that as we, as people become less afraid of that experience, more willing to experience it, if it's worth it, then the relevance of the intensity seems to drop. And I guess that whole idea of I'm happy to do something that hurts if it's worth it is one that we probably need to explore a bit more. Because are you a runner or a gym buddy? I, I am a runner, yeah. Ah, so you know what it's like when you haven't been for a run for a while or you're training for an event, you push yourself. It's painful. A little bit, yeah. yeah it's <laughs> slightly <normal>. uncomfortable, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you can reframe it, but it's it doesn't feel pleasant at the time. And yet, it's worth it. Because you're doing it for a purpose. A bit like, so women are expected very often to give birth without any pain relief. This natural childbirthing thing is a, is a really strong vibe. So here is pain that is expected to be the worst pain that a woman can endure. And the expectation about pain relief has turned 180 degrees backwards and forwards over, well, since probably the 1880s. Yeah. So we've gone through full, total um, twilight sleep. Let's sedate the woman completely so she doesn't feel a thing. But at the same time, we've got, let's have this natural childbirthing. And then we've got epidurals. And, and so our attitudes towards what's tolerable differs. And women will go through and endure painful birthing because it's worth it. They want to have a healthy baby. And similarly, weight lifters. They lift enormous weights. It hurts because it's worth it. And if we can perhaps tap into what is important to this person then and help them realize that that pain is not necessarily about damage. Relationship's not that wonderful. But it's about your nervous system getting a bit cranky then we can be far more flexible in helping people be willing to experience pain in the pursuit of what matters to them. And I've got, I work with blokes, um, guys who've had, um, oh, they've been construction workers or they've been mechanics, that, you know, working yeah. blokes, and they get sore. And a lot of them seem to be motorcyclists. <laughs> I don't know why. There. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but there's always one in, in, in the group. And I ask them, you know, have you gone out on your bike since you hurt your back? And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I did. And they look a bit sheepish. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, and what was it like? Oh, when I got back, I was so sore, really sore. And um, then I asked them, and was it worth it? And you watch their light, face light up. Oh, yeah, it was worth it just to get out on the bike. So people are willing to do stuff that's hard if they can see value in it. And that, you know, people go through painful surgery like a hip replacement. It's not exactly pain-free. Exactly, yeah. if it's worth it, if they think they're going to get a good result at the end of it. And so I think we can start to look at pain and our willingness to experience pain in a more contextual way. It's worth doing some hard stuff if there's value in the end. And pain intensity is perhaps not the most important thing. Feeling safe 
that it's going to be okay, that we can um, get through this. Yeah, that you're not causing more damage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that part's the important part. And then being able to, as a result of doing what's important, start to look at strategies that help us to do more or be more consistent or more reliable or recover more quickly. That's when we can start to bring those coping strategies in um, rather than always focusing on pain as as the thing that we must banish. Yeah, Um, as an outcome measure. Yeah, because pain's normal. Even you and I sitting still for a while we're going to move because we get uncomfortable and that's pain it's just part of normal life and I think that we've almost set up this expectation that we should never have pain um that doesn't seem to be working terribly well yeah no low back pain is the most you know it's the thing that causes the most years with lived with disability Uh in the world and that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is suffering as a result. There was a survey here in New Zealand that showed that um, one in five New Zealanders live with pain that's gone on for, you know, three months or longer. And out of that um, one in five, 45% of those people are not looking for treatment. Now, it may be that they've already got treatment and it's really great, it may be that they've given up in disgust. There's nothing to help themselves yeah. give up. But I would bet, um, because I've got stats, to, <laughs> that there is a chunk of people in there who've said, yeah, I can still live really well, even though I've got this pain. And that's the bit that I think we can start to enhance. Yeah, tap into Let's a little bit. Let's have a look at people who live well and learn from them. And let's show those people who have become really capable and manage their pain really, really well to live a life that's worth living rather than being afraid to do things and putting life on hold until something comes along. That's a waste. Exactly. Yeah. No, and I think that's such a great way to look at just pain management in general. It might just be Western medicine as just a general statement, but that idea that pain is something we need to eradicate really sends us down that pathway where we're doing a lot of things that might end up in the long run, actually causing more, more clinician dependence or cause patients to be ultimately unsatisfied with the care they're receiving, right? Because they're thinking of this, they're going to reach the Island where pain is no more. Yeah. Or they're just, you know, in between the scans, they're on hold waiting. And that, you know, people tell tell me of that roller coaster of hope and then despair as it doesn't work um and I think that must well that's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking to hear as people go up and down through this roller coaster feeling as though they've failed because they haven't recovered the way that they're supposed to the things that they've done you know most of the people that I work with do everything that they've been told to do. They do the exercises. They've listened to the explanations. They've taken the pills. They've had the surgeries. They've done everything, and it hasn't worked. And they get the impression that they're at fault rather than thinking maybe what we're doing to help them with pain is not helping them. Maybe we've got it wrong. Um, and that's really difficult. We've got a lot of trust in our health professionals. 
that they know what they're doing and that they're doing the right thing. And as health professionals, we want to do the right thing. And when it doesn't work, often we go and do the same thing but harder or more. Um, And that doesn't seem to be helping people at all. So maybe we have to think, you know, let's do a, a 15 or 90 degree turn and think differently about it. Yeah, I feel well. I wonder what that does to clinicians too. And you probably address this in your program. You know, clinicians come from you know we get into the field because ultimately we want to help people, right? Like we want to help people feel better, and to to feel like or to come to the realization that maybe what I'm doing isn't doing anything positive or isn't the right thing to do can probably be a a hard no pun intended, but a hard pill to swallow, right? Yeah, I think it's a one of the most difficult things. In fact, there's a real gap in our in our research in terms of how does a clinician broach the topic that your pain may not go away. We don't know. We don't know how people are told. We what we know from the people living with pain's experience is that they are they feel that they're being fobbed off or they're told, well, just you've just got to learn to live with it. Um, So it's very dismissive rather than someone thoughtfully and caringly saying, let's have a look at the, you know, what's going on for you. And we know that your pain may not change, but I can help you do more. That kind of conversation isn't, we don't know very much about it. Um, It seems to be a conversation that we find hard. And when we're sitting in front of somebody who's distressed, who feels like their life is over, um, that's hard for us as clinicians. And I remember when I was told, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do for you, which is the way I was told. Um, I went away thinking, so I'm going to have to live like this forever. Yeah, forever. There's no there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. I was just very, very fortunate that Mike Butler said, read this book, this will really help you. And that was the... Um, challenge of pain and that but nobody sort of took that book and then said okay now knowing that what can you do so I had to pick that up myself I think that's a little bit different now there's much more out there for people to learn that that component but we if we don't tell people that um maybe there isn't something that will take your pain away or reduce it then we're missing that opportunity to um, to actually accompany people on the next phase, which is through that the worst time is when you think this is the this is the end of the road, and we as professionals want to stand back because we don't feel comfortable. Yeah, we don't that's, know what to say, right? No, that's hard. And I think what we can do is is offer um, people that opportunity for us to bear witness. I, I like that whole idea of I am sitting beside you. I can't do anything, but I can be with you. I can be a witness to this struggle of this realisation that, that life will be different and I'll just be there so that we're there as a um, not frightened but capable of being willing to sit with that distress. As that person starts to think, well, what does this mean for me? And who I am. Because in my PhD, I found that the overarching um, 
thing that people with persistent pain who ultimately learn to live well, what they're, they're trying to resolve is the sense of I've lost who I am. Yeah, personal am identity. Anyway? Yeah. Who is this person that can't do what, you know, dads are meant to do? Dads are supposed to play rough and tumble with their kids and I can't do that. So when they've been able to resolve that and they've worked out who they are in a positive way, then we've got a you know, opportunity for people to um, to flourish, which is what occupational therapy is about, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and I think, yeah, I, that whole that whole area is just super, super fascinating. You know, we talk about it. We, I think we hear a lot about it in school, especially in occupational therapy. Like, you're supposed to develop this therapeutic use of self and build this therapeutic relationship with a with a client or a patient and walk through them, but taking the step from that's what we read about in a book or that's what we see in school to, you know, this is, this is a real patient in front of me who is about to go through something very, very difficult, you know, recovering from or trying to get back to some kind of normal function after being diagnosed with something is, can be very intimidating for a clinician, right? Yeah, it is. And I think there's a bit of, um, there's some maturity that we gain as we've heard the stories more often. I personally draw on mindfulness, um, and being fully present when I'm hearing that, because this is the luxury that I have. If I spend an hour with somebody, I can be with them and and show that I'm willing to be there. So that builds and increases that rapport. And actually, I don't take that home with me. It's just um, by being being focused on what is in the moment. I can then let it go because I've been fully present and it seems to be, it's much easier to let go. Yeah, of course I think about the people that I've worked with. Um, They, you know, they're amazing. You know, people that are living with pain are the most strong people I know because they get up and they do stuff with this invisible experience every single day and they still carry on doing the essentials and that's um i think we need to give some credit to people who yeah absolutely seek help for their pain because they are still getting up getting dressed um they may do it in a way that we think oh that's just terrible but let's start to look at that as a strength even people who do the dreaded booming and busting and we think oh that's terrible shouldn't be doing that um actually it shows some some resilience to be able to push yourself through those discomfort times. If we can moderate that so that we do the booming in the pursuit of what's important and we plan the bust, then we've probably got something that works for that person in that context because we all boom and bust. Thanksgiving for you guys. You run exactly. around like headless chops <laughs> in that time just before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving Day is full of way too much eating. Um, <laughs> and you crash, right? And the, and the turkey kind of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what we do. And yet we say to our people with pain, they shouldn't do that. And so we, we begin to apply rules to stuff that I think if the person knows they can pick and choose different ways of doing that, then we're much more respectful of um, the fact that we are also likely to do the same ourselves. And we all experience not necessarily pain, but we all experience things that we don't like. 
in life. And I think if we can bring that same compassion towards ourselves about the things that we don't like to experience to the people that we're working with, that makes that job so much easier. We can be kind to people. As Jacinda Ardern, our Prime Minister, keeps saying, be kind to one another. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, well, and, and, you know, at least when I was practicing clinically in at the VA, we dealt with a lot of veterans who had a lot of chronic pain that were service-related. And it, yeah. just sometimes being, and I was young in my career when this was happening, like just taking the time to listen to them and just yeah. say something like, man, that sounds like that's really, really difficult. What yeah. can I do to help? Like, I don't, I don't really know, but I'm willing to help just made a huge, you could see their faces light up and their posture change and they were ready to, you know, ready to do whatever. So I think just amazing the the impact we can have. Yeah. You know, people with pain, especially in trauma will judge themselves as being weak or um, awful or bad because they're not doing things in the way that they want to or expect to. And it just brings up all of the stuff from, you know, that we've, heard over the years as, as children all the don't do this and you're bad if you do that and um we do that as clinicians as well we feel like we're breaking the rules if we're doing stuff that you know is I guess like disclosing that we feel moved by somebody's story I was trained don't disclose but actually I I think that's puts a barrier up between me and the person if I'm doing if I'm showing that I'm moved by somebody's story I'm saying as long as I'm doing it in the service of this person then I'm showing that it matters I care this is important and to say to somebody that's that would have been awful had I been going through that I would not know what to do that's um honoring their own experience. Yeah, it's validating their lived experience. I always say, you know, healthcare, ultimately healthcare is a human experience, right? It's yes. the clinician yeah. who is a person treating or serving a patient who is also a person. We've all, yeah. we, you know, we come to it with our own, yeah. our own histories, our own pasts and the way we look at the world. The, the really weird thing is that as we go into healthcare um, efficiencies, what healthcare managers are doing is trying to remove the person-to-person contact mm-hmm. by lots of electronic um, approaches. So we have online this and that. But what we know from this qualitative research is that people value another person hearing them and being with them. And that one-to-one or group process is the bit that the connection that people really want. So we might be more efficient at treating blood pressure that way. But when it comes to human experience, like pain or depression or trauma or those things, I don't think, you know, even when somebody's going in for surgery, um, they're going to have some emotions. We need to have somebody that says, it's actually okay to have those feelings. And I'd be feeling them too. And I'll be with you. So you're not alone. that's part of healthcare. Yeah, you can't reduce everything down to a spreadsheet or a metric somewhere. Yeah, or an electronic gadget that says, you know, we can have a tin voice saying, oh, yes, you are really sad. That's yeah. just not going to quite cut it, really. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, how do you, have you had any experience with telehealth in this area then? Like, you know, obviously, you know, COVID happened and we were all pulled out oh. of the clinic, it seemed like. <laughs> yeah. So have you noticed any differences in the interactions between maybe yourself or other clinicians and patients via telehealth? Are you still able to make those connections and are the things it's you need harder. to worry about? It is harder. You don't get the micro expressions. Uh-huh. Um, it's harder because you know it's interaction and communication is a whole thing. But what I've heard from people is that when they're seeing people in their own homes now, OTs are so lucky because we get to see homes and we get to see workplaces. Yeah. We go places where people are. But a lot of physios don't and psychologists. And what they're saying is this is the first time that they've seen how this person lives. So it's giving an, a, a window into this person's life, which changes the way that they work. I think it's also made us appreciate that these so-called soft skills that we maybe learned in our first year of training yes. are actually the critical skills that we need to use when we're working with somebody, that the hands-on stuff, the gadgets, the prescriptions actually mean nothing unless we can communicate effectively. So what I'm hoping is that we'll have a whole flood of people starting to say the courses that um, that I run on, you know, communicating and um, motivational interviewing and acceptance and commitment therapy, perhaps that will begin, those courses will get booked out because up until now it's been a hard sell. Everybody thinks that they're a great communicator yeah. <laughs> until, until they record themselves <laughs> and then they realise, hmm, maybe I'm not so good. Um, so I'm hoping that will that will be a positive that comes from it. Um, some of my participants in my group program said that it was so much more convenient for them to use telehealth because they don't have to travel. Oh, yeah, they don't have to go anywhere. If they're in rural parts of our our country, it's very difficult to find a local provider, especially if you're three hours away from, you know, somewhere where you can access somebody who has expertise in the area. Um, Our challenge in New Zealand is that we don't always have good broadband, so it's not (laughs) that easy in parts of the country um, because we're a very mountainous, hilly um, country. It's not that easy to just it's not set flat. up. Yeah. yeah, it's just, um, it's harder. However, it, the participants in the group said there were some really good things that they really enjoyed about having this group program online. Um, I found that I could manage the conversations so we could work, we could work together a lot more. Um, and there's lots of ways that we can liven up um, internet-based interactions that I use for my teaching as well because I teach entirely online. So I don't have face-to-face classes with um, with students. So we have to use active learning strategies, which are pretty much what we do when we're working with a patient. We we are using active learning. Yeah, so yeah. So try this out. I wonder what would happen if you looked at this. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and I think one of the, the, one of the constraints of telehealth or at least the constraints that it's placed on a lot of us who have, especially in the you know outpatient physiotherapy or kind of biomechanical realm, you can't, you know, you can't do a mobilization, you can't touch a patient. So it's forced us to try to, to begin addressing or implementing those, those higher level, you know, active yeah. treatments, active engagement of the client. Right. Yeah. 
And given how appallingly bad we are at our palpation, um, interrater <laughs> reliability is atrocious. So you've got to ask yourself, how much is that uh, an integral part of treatment? There is meaning in touch, and I don't want to put, put touch down as a, as a modality because I think there is value in human-to-human -human touch. But I don't know that it's the entirety of what we can offer. And I think it's often not the entirety. In fact, it's the simple part. Yeah. We can touch somebody. What hands-on... Um, so I, I work with a lot of um, massage therapists and um, I teach a lot of them. And what, we, what we're talking through is... What does that touch mean? How it's massage therapy is not just the hands on. It's from the moment the person comes in to seek some help through the initial assessment, through the conversations that are had while that person's having hands on, through to the conclusion, and then out from there. It's all of that is our treatment. And we can sometimes forget that and think, oh, it's that little tiny bit in there. Yeah, where I'm, um, where I'm doing something with them, right, or to them. Yeah, or to them. And, and I'm hoping that we can reconceptualize the whole process of therapy. That's why I like um, Fabrizio Benedetti's approach of saying, you know, there's the, first of all, working out that you're sick. What is that, you know, how is that influenced by culture and by past experience and expectations then there's the um looking for help and who do we seek help from and why and what's shaping that behavior and then there's when we meet that person and we actually are face to face and all those things that we learn and read around the ritual of the of the meeting therapist moment the trustworthiness that we have the sense of um compassion that we have for people and then we've got the actual treatment, which is, you know, a tiny bit, really, out of all of that. Out of the, and huge, so the, much the overarching of that, experience, yeah. Yeah. And so much of that is considered non-specific effects, therefore disregard them because they're not the real active ingredient. And until you start looking yeah. at placebo research and start realizing that actually a big chunk of all of our treatments are about that stuff. Um, and perhaps the active ingredient is actually a tiny little bit and the rest of the stuff is what actually does the job. Yeah. Makes us a bit more humble perhaps. Maybe. Yeah. And I think, well, it has people that are trying to figure out how you're going to code it and bill for it, you know, scratching oh. their heads, you know, Thankfully, here, that's, that's what we're having to deal with. Here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although we do have lots of constraints on what's offered and how we, how we work. Um, but, you know, coding for each individual treatment is, is not, you know, component of treatment is not something that we need to be concerned about here. It's more yeah. about what professions do and nobody knows what occupational therapists do anyway. So, exactly. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Gives you a little leeway. <laughs> we do doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's fun. So, well, thank you for taking the time to talk just about I love talking about pain and especially with somebody that knows what they're talking about and can really go into depth I'm sure that you know, our listeners are, are going to love it um kind of pleasure. any uh last minute thoughts that you would give to maybe a clinician who wants to explore this a little further oh I think I think it's well worth taking the time to talk to another professional from outside your own profession to see what they do 
the pain um, to that cross interprofessional idea of looking at um, that we all look at pain with a different lens and that offers some yes, opportunity yeah. and that pain is about the person and their experience so that means we need to learn how to listen really really well Real, and not judge that in any way just listen listen and not judge yeah all righty well thank you very much where can uh, where can folks find you if they want to learn more about your program what you do um so university of otago in new zealand is where i work and you can find my um details on the department of orthopedic surgery and musculoskeletal medicine um but just look for Bronnie lennox thompson and you'll probably find me somewhere okay. <laughs> um, i'm on twitter as edemis free i'm on facebook as Bronnie lennox thompson and i have a blog um www.healthskills.co.nz and I blog infrequently, it just depends on how the mood takes me yeah. now, but I've been doing it since 2007. So there's, oh, so there's a lot of stuff on there. Stuff yeah. There. yeah. Awesome. Well, Bronnie, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I know I enjoyed the discussion. I love talking about the biopsychosocial model and all that that entails, you know, coming from, outpatient orthopedics and specialty rehab and pain management from a clinical background myself, the entire idea of getting to the root cause or treating patients in their entirety within the context and with the, within the experience, their lived experience of the diagnosis or the disorder or the pain is very much appealing to me. And in my own clinical practice, I've seen the difference where patients get better outcomes if that's how you address it, rather than this is the pathophysiological thing, this is the body part or the movement that we're going to address, and this is what we're going to do. If you look at people in their context, in their entirety, as a whole individual that is not just a shoulder, but is a, you know, a guy that has a, a job, maybe he, he or she has a family or important life roles that they're limited in because of their pain that they're experiencing, how can we begin giving them the tools to self-manage that in a way that they can continue doing the things that they love to do without being negatively impacted by the pain that they're experiencing or the dysfunction or the disorder. So that whole piece is super fascinating to me. It's one of the foundational pillars that I walk clients through at Rehab U is how do we take what you're doing and put it through the lens of a biopsychosocial approach. In fact, if you read the Better Outcomes Manifesto, the commitment number one is we will adopt a biopsychosocial approach to healthcare. So I very much enjoyed that, and I can just talk about that all day long. The other thing that I thought was very important to understand is the idea of the placebo effect. And oftentimes, especially in the outpatient world, in the rehabilitation world or the physiotherapy world, even chiropractors, the idea of all I need to do to treat my patients is provide a treatment, do some sort of ma manipulation or mobilization or give them this exercise or put the e-stim here. And oftentimes we, we, t we tend to think that 
it's by our hands that they're healed, right? <laughs> right? Like we're doing something and they're benefiting from it because of the way we manipulated their tissues. But if you dig into the research about the placebo effect, you begin to realize that oftentimes what we are doing or what we think we're doing when we apply a treatment isn't what's really going on. Sometimes all that's happening is that we're altering a patient's perception. And if you've read the article that I wrote, oh, maybe, I don't know, early 2020 on perception and what is the role of context in treatment and how does it affect patient experience, patient outcomes, patient's perception of the quality of the care they receive, it's very much tied to this idea of the placebo effect where if patients expect a benefit, they typically have a, a experience a higher benefit. So the idea of t how do we leverage this as clinicians, like how do we take a patient who might be on the fence or might be skeptical about the treatment that we're providing, the way we communicate, the way we set up, if you would, a treatment can really tap into this idea of the placebo effect. And we can give a patient or a client hope that the treatment they're going to receive or, or even the self-management skills we're going to give them is going to be enough to get them through the day, is going to be enough for them to overcome their pain or their dysfunction. So it's a very, you could do, again, you could do research and research on the placebo effect and read about it. And once you start doing that, you'll begin to see how that effect is not limited to randomized controlled trials, but it is apparent and effective in almost everything we do as clinicians. So that's that. If you enjoyed today's conversation, if you enjoyed the show, head on over to betteroutcomes.show. And you can sign up for our email list, subscribe to our newsletter. And what we do is we send out a, the post whenever we drop a new episode and we release episodes every other week. Um, you can go sign up there. If you really like the show and you want to help us out, you can go to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. It helps people find the show. It helps people uh, hear the message. And I'd be very appreciative if you did that. Until the next episode, guys, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.